Amen. Well, again, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to be this morning. As you may recall, we left off when I was last preaching, I don't know, maybe that was five or six weeks ago, in the middle of Peter's sermon, which he gave on the day of Pentecost. On that day, the Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples, and they began speaking in tongues, in foreign languages. And people were so astonished at this that the question arose, what does this mean? And it's that question that prompts Peter's sermon. When we were last here, we looked at only the first third of his sermon, and there we saw that he begins by quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, who prophesied that in the last days, the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, and all of God's people would prophesy. And this is where the quotation leaves off in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is where we're picking up this morning in verse 22, and what we'll see is that Peter's burden for the remainder of this sermon is to convince the Jews that the name of the Lord, the name they must call upon in order to be saved, is the name of Jesus. In verse 22, hear now the word of the Lord. I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Let's give God glory. Glory to the Father. seated. As we look now at the second part of Peter's sermon, what we find is that everything Peter says is driving toward the conclusion of verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's sermon is ultimately about the identity of this man known as Jesus of Nazareth. He is both Lord and Christ. And Peter's hope is that the Jews might call upon him in order to be saved. And so this morning, following our passage, we're going to ask two very simple but very big questions, which are these. Who is Jesus? And then secondly, how should we respond to him? Who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? So firstly then, who is Jesus? And this will take us all the way through verse 36. Now, Peter begins in verse 22 by naming Jesus of Nazareth and identifying him, he says, as a man attested to you by God. And what this means is simply that God had made it plain that Jesus was specially sent by him. And he did so, Peter says, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. At this point, Jesus had gone viral because of the miracles that he had performed, and Peter confidently assumes that no one is going to challenge him on this point. No one is going to deny the claim that God had worked mighty things through Jesus. I think one of the points that's worth making here and seeing this comment, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but the Gospels and the book of Acts, they were written early enough such that if their accounts were simply made up, people would have easily discovered it. Luke likely wrote Acts in the early 60s, some say maybe earlier. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were also written in the 50s and 60s. This is only 20 to 30 years removed from Jesus' life and ministry. So if you lived in the first century and read these accounts, and if you wanted to know, did Jesus really do these things? Did he really feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish by the Sea of Galilee, then you could go there. You could go to the region of Galilee and ask around, did anything like this really happen? 5,000 people, they were bound to be witnesses to that event. Or the healing of the blind man or the paralytic, you can go to those towns of so many events in the Gospels, the actual names and places of these events are given such that they could be researched and you could say, did that man, was his sight really restored? Did that man really get up and walk? The Gospels are chock full of the public miracles of Jesus. And if all of it were simply a hoax, people would have easily discovered it and dismissed the apostles. 
But if the gospel accounts are true, then it makes sense for Peter to make this comment and for Luke to record it. You yourselves know, Peter says. So that's just a little dose of encouragement for us this morning. If the gospel accounts are simply made up, then it's nearly impossible for us to understand how so many people in the first century came to actually believe them. Ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit births faith in our hearts, yet he does not do so disconnected from real historical events. So that's the first thing. Peter speaks to Jesus' works, and then he speaks to Jesus' crucifixion. So we're moving forward along the timeline of Jesus' life, and there's two things that Peter says about the crucifixion. First, he notes that it wasn't a blip in God's plan. From the outside, it may look to the Jews like the death of the Messiah could only be a mistake, a horrible interruption to God's plan. But the truth of the matter, Peter says, is that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, the cross was the central reason for Jesus' coming. And that's because it was the only way for man to be saved. And I want us to to think about this, to think about what kind of Savior Jesus is. If, as Scripture teaches, man's chief problem is that God is holy and righteous and we are not, Jesus says in Matthew that out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And he says that all of these things defile us. If our sin separates us from a God who is pure and holy and always judges evil, then the only solution is that somehow our record of evil would be forgiven and erased. None of us can undo the wrongs we've committed. And we can't right those wrongs either. Free forgiveness is our only hope. And this, praise God, is why we're here. It's the purpose that he sent his son. As Peter writes in his first letter, that he might bear our sins in his body on the tree. God will judge every last sin. And so the only question for each one of us is whether we will trust in Jesus to bear our judgment or whether we will bear that judgment ourselves. So the cross was not a mistake, but it was part of God's loving plan to save us from sin and death and from his wrath. Jesus' crucifixion was purposed by God. That's the first thing Peter says about it. But then, secondly, Peter says that the crucifixion is our doing. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And yes, Peter here is addressing the men of Israel, the house of Israel. But Scripture is clear both here and elsewhere that both Jew and Gentile alike are responsible for the death of Jesus. The men of Israel killed Jesus, we read, by the hands of lawless men. That is, by the hands of Gentiles, those who did not have the law of God. And just two chapters later here in Acts, the disciples quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? See, in order for us to cry out for mercy, we must first understand something of the depths of our own guilt and wrongdoing. We share in the guilt of Adam's sin, Scripture teaches, but I think it's also fair to say that all mankind shares in the guilt of Jesus' crucifixion. 
Had we been there, you and I would have joined in that chorus of voices that sang out, crucify him. And that's the true nature of our sin. It's that kind of hatred for God, the God who loves us. And so this should encourage us to run from sin and to lament when we do sin, because this is its seed. It's a willingness to kill God himself. So here in Acts 2, we learn our guilt, but we also see the incredible depths of God's love and mercy. Peter tells these men that they crucified and killed Jesus. And yet what's happening? What is God's response? His response is to send Peter to the very men who killed his son, not to condemn them, but to show them their sin and to lead them to repentance and salvation. Brothers and sisters, rest assured here, God's mercy is seen to reach to the very greatest of sinners. If anyone here is wondering whether God is willing to forgive your sin and to cleanse you of it, whatever it is, God's word assures us that he is willing. All we have to do is cry out to him and he will freely forgive. According to God's plan, Jesus was crucified that we might be saved. Of course, the cross is not the end of the story. Peter proceeds to what we might say is the main event, to his central claim, which is that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. So we go from his life to his death, now to his resurrection. And Peter argues that the scriptures foresaw that this would be the case, that Jesus would rise again. In verse 24, Peter says, It was not possible for him, that is Jesus, to be held by it, speaking of death, for David says concerning him. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16, this psalm of David penned a thousand years prior. And though it appears that David is speaking about himself in this psalm, Peter sees that certain statements couldn't possibly apply to King David. Look especially at verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In the New Testament, the word Hades and in Hebrew, the word Sheol, these terms don't refer to hell. Even though Hades is commonly thought of referring to hell in our day, that's how we often use it. Rather, these are simply generic terms for the grave where people go when they die. So David's point, he's not trying to say that He's going to be preserved from eternal judgment and fire in hell. But David is saying that he's not going to remain dead at all. God will not let his Holy One see corruption. The alternative that he looks forward to is dwelling in God's very presence. In verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the rest of Peter's argument is quite straightforward. David died and we can go, Dig up his bones today if we want to. David saw corruption. In Psalm 16, then, he is clearly speaking prophetically. And he's looking forward to the fulfillment of the covenant and the promises that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7. Listen to God's promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God told David that he would rest in the grave. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's sons, Scripture says, would occupy an eternal throne, meaning 
He wouldn't be abandoned to the grave. He wouldn't see corruption or bodily decay, as David writes. And of course, it's witnessing Jesus' resurrection and then Jesus opening the Scriptures to the disciples and explaining to them, all these things are about me. It's those things that leads the disciples to understand Scripture afresh in this way as Peter reads Psalm 16. And then in verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so it's the Old Testament prophecies together with the New Testament witness of the apostles that form this strong historical foundation for the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the gospel is that Christ died and rose again according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to speak there of how Christ appeared to the apostles, the resurrected Christ. So if we want to consider the claims of Christ, what we see Peter doing is what we ourselves ought to do. What is he doing with the Jews there? He's opening the Word of God. And in our witness, as much as we want to share with people and tell them, you know, as best as we can extemporaneously about the Lord Jesus, and we should, we should also invite people as much as we're able to actually open God's Word with us and consider its claims. I think I've maybe said it before, but I think oftentimes we miss opportunities simply because we fail at the invitation. People often don't come, whether to church or to a Bible study or to a one-on-one reading of one of the Gospels, simply because we never think to ask them. We never think maybe they'll actually say, yes, I am willing to do that. But this is ultimately where we need to begin, to open God's Word with people. So Jesus was attested by God. He was crucified. He was raised again. And then starting in verse 33, Peter adds this claim that Christ is now exalted at the right hand of God. And the Greek word for exalt, its literal meaning is just to lift up. It was upon his ascension into heaven that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And it's upon that exaltation, Peter says, that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now by this, Peter doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Rather, what he means is that just as Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, remember that the Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. Just as Jesus received the Spirit, a special empowerment for his ministry, so in the same way now, he has received authority to pour out the Spirit upon us for the same purpose, for our ministry. And it's a ministry of witnessing to the resurrected Christ. Christ can send the Spirit because He has been granted the very power and authority of God the Father. And that's part of Peter's argument. The Spirit has come because Christ has been exalted and the Spirit of God can only be sent by one who has the authority of God. Christ has been exalted. He shares His very throne. And again, Peter argues that David had foreseen these things. And at this, at this time, the second quotation is from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here David is recording a vision he had of God speaking to someone who, not only does David call him Lord, but this figure is granted to sit at the very right hand of God. 
Now this is, we have to understand a very striking thing for a Jewish person to say. For the Israelite, there was only one Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is not just some local deity, one of many gods, but he rules over all heaven and earth. He is God over everything. And he's present everywhere and his power has no limits. He has a heavenly throne. And so for David to then speak of one who is invited to sit at his very right hand, sharing God's own power and glory, it begs the question, who could this possibly be? What mere man could possibly be worthy of sitting at the very right hand of God? And of course, this is Peter's point. David spoke of one who would overcome death itself and be exalted to the very throne room of God. And after witnessing the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Peter delivers this powerful conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus now is Lord. He rules over all things presently, and one day when he returns, every knee will bow, and all creation will be subdued before him. But Jesus is also Christ, and hopefully we are subdued before him as his friends, because he is the Savior of the world, and, and he extends that offer to us. He is the one who has dealt with our sin and overcome death itself. And any Savior who hasn't done both of these two things is no Savior at all. We need both our sin to be dealt with, but the end of the story cannot possibly be death and our salvation be a good salvation. The only kind of Savior that man could possibly have given that we all face death is a Savior who saves us from it, who actually raises us to new life with himself. That is the kind of Savior that Scripture gives us. So this is Peter's conclusion to our first question, who is Jesus? Peter says that Scripture teaches he is both Lord and Christ. And we'll turn now more briefly to our second question, which is in many ways an equally important question, and it's this. How should we respond to Jesus? How should we respond to Jesus? Now we read in verse 37 that this question, that this is the question that Jews have after they listen to Peter preach. They're cut to the heart, the text says. They've realized their guilt and they're absolutely devastated. Peter tells them that they have the blood of their Messiah on their hands. This Jesus whom you crucified. So their consciences are rightly burdened to the point of despair. And so they ask, brothers, what shall we do? Somewhere along the way, as the seed of faith sprouts in our hearts, there develops in us a deep sense of the dire need we have of God's forgiveness. And our hearts long to be known how we can be made right with him. The scripture is wonderfully clear and direct on this very question. In verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. Repentance, I'm sure many of you have heard this, but to repent is simply to turn. 
It's ultimately to turn from ourselves and our selfish pursuits to living for God. Repentance ultimately has God as its reference point. It's as we begin to see his beauty and goodness that our hearts begin to long to walk with him, to know him more and more and to be more like him, to dwell with him and to experience more of his beauty and his goodness and his grace, and to learn the things that are pleasing to him, to ask, what is it in my life that is displeasing to God? And what might I do to live a life pleasing to God? So repentance is, first of all, this change of heart, this longing to be united with God in friendship. And then that leads us to a change in how we live. Let me just say, repentance is not some generic notion of living a better life. But it's ultimately about turning to the Lord Jesus, to Him, Jesus of Nazareth, and saying he wasn't just a first century Jew, but he is Lord and King. He is my Lord and King. It begins with the sincere belief that Jesus is worthy of our worship and obedience because of who he is and what he has done for us. So repentance, the beginning here, is being captured by Jesus. We respond to him by repenting, and secondly, we respond to Jesus by being Baptized. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is a picture, and it's a picture of God joining us to Jesus. Peter says here, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 6 that in baptism we are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection even. This is how he puts it. Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And when we're joined to Jesus in this way, through baptism, joined to his death and resurrection, what we see in Scripture is that his blood cleanses us. Baptism, secondly, is a picture of this cleansing, this this washing away, and that's what the water is about. That's, well, that's why we have that as symbolism. It's a cleansing picture. Again, Peter says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And be clear, we can't fully explore this now. Scripture teaches that we are saved through faith in Jesus, through trusting in him and what he has done for us. But Peter's point here is that real faith, sincere faith, responds in these concrete ways in repentance and baptism. When we do, Peter says, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we trust in Christ, God himself comes to dwell within us by his Spirit, and we receive that same resurrection life that Christ himself knew. That is ultimately the start of new and eternal life, God with us. And Peter ends in our text here by saying that the promise, this promise of the Spirit, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Jews and their children, this promise is for them. But it's also for the Gentiles, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The passage ends with Peter continuing to preach, pleading with people, to repent. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, he says. 
And I'm amazed by the word pleading here in the scripture. Sometimes we need to plead with people to be saved. Luke records that roughly 3,000 souls believed and were baptized and were added to God's people that day. History confirms that Christianity did actually proceed this way, that it exploded in the first century, not just here in Jerusalem, but throughout the entire Roman Empire. And I think the most compelling explanation for that explosion is that what we read here in Acts 2 is true. Jesus was raised. His apostles really saw him, and they've testified that he is both Lord and Christ. Right? And still today, he is bestowing his Holy Spirit upon millions of people around the globe. In South America, in Africa, in Asia, Christianity is exploding. It's like wildfire. Right? And it's hard to understand how that could be, especially when in so many of these places, as we just prayed for the persecuted church, it is not advantageous to be a Christian. It's just the opposite. It's a great burden. It's a threat upon one's life in many cases, just as it was in the first century of the Roman Empire. It was not a welcome thing. Confessing Christ led to being ostracized and in some cases persecuted. But still, Christianity today is alive and well. Baptisms are taking place right now. Right now, people are being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus around the globe. And that's because, ultimately, Jesus is alive and well. That's Peter's conclusion. He is both Lord and Christ, and he is today still calling all people to himself. So if you have yet to call upon him, if you are considering the claims of Christ, considering the claims of Scripture, the invitation this morning is to know that he is both Lord and Christ. And to know that he is willing. He sent Peter to the worst of peoples, to those who were responsible for his very death. He is willing to save each and every one of us who would call upon his name. For those of us who do trust in Christ, this text is a great encouragement to us. Because just as Jesus sent his spirit, who Peter witnessed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we still have that same Holy Spirit in our witness. What we see here is our job. To do what Peter did is what we are called to do. And so let's do that. Let's be a people of witness. Let's be a people who have Jesus' name on our lips. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you would indeed make us a people who believe deeply in our hearts that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. God, may we be a people of faith and repentance. God, that such that our baptism would mean something to us, that we would seek to live lives that are different and holy. God, ultimately, that the world might look upon us and our love for one another and our, our unity and say, who are these people? God, help us to be a people who speak, who speak just as Peter spoke, who open the word with whoever would be willing to listen, Lord, and point out to people that you, in fact, Jesus, are Lord and Christ, our only hope 
in life and in death. God, thank you for this amazing text. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your church. Lord, we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.